Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Uh, today we are doing a little bit of a cross the pond collaboration, which uh, we haven't really seen before. I certainly haven't seen before. We're going to be talking about Keeper's Heart Whiskey with David Perkins. And at Keeper's Heart, he's got the titles of Liquid Collaborator and Advisor. Uh, you also might know him from his time at High West, where he was a founder and uh, ran the place for a long time. Up until just a couple of years ago. So, David, welcome on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, David. So, um, I think because a lot of the uh, audience, at least those that I know, are going to immediately recognize your name from your time at High West, I thought it pertinent to start there and see how it led into Keeper's Heart. If that's all right with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to make one tiny correction. You said across the pond collaboration. It's a semi across the pond collaboration, but the big deal is Brian Nation uh, from Jameson Middleton. He lives in Minneapolis now, so That's it's, true. it's sort of a cross state collaboration. But the, the Irish guy's over here now, and the, I guess the cross the pond's more in style than than a person. True, true. I mean, you we'll get into this a little later, but you still are getting the Irish whiskey from Great Northern. Right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. there are multiple ways to interpret that, and uh, I interpret it obviously different than you did. So, no, no, um, all, all good. Look, I, my first ever guest on this podcast, Will Persons, uh, runs Old Time Spirits, uh, the Pacific oh. Northwest, and uh, he's making Irish whiskey. That label, Irish whiskey, what we would normally think of as American um, apple brandy. Oh. So, but because there's an old Irish tradition of making whiskey from apples it's a little complicated but um he basically got a grandfather clause in there and he's able to sell irish whiskey made from apples wow okay that's pretty weird uh, yep confusing uh, but weird exactly exactly <laughs> uh, so so yeah so so dude you're uh, the founder of high west out in utah um, and you led it through, uh, but from founding through immense growth all the way through, through 2020. And I really want to uh, start with asking, you know, who, who influenced you at different points in that process from founding to growth and, and expansion? Yeah, sure. And, and one slight collection or correction, um, we sold in 2016 and okay. uh, I I left the, shortly thereafter, so I haven't been there for it's almost been five years now. Oh, sorry so, that I had a I missed that one. That happened well, occasionally, all right. so all good. Continue. No big deal. Um, but I've been there in heart ever since. So you know you you're darn close in terms of that. Um, but you know back to uh, who influenced me? Gosh, you know, uh, I I'd say if if, if I had a nail to one person, it'd be Jim Rutledge from Four Roses. And, uh, you know, back in my journey, when I uh, had the idea, um, and, you know, the other big influence, obviously, was my wife who let uh, who let me quit my nice, paying, comfy job at Genentech. And, um, you know, she quit her job, too, and we moved to Park City, but she let us do that. So that's her, certainly an influence. Um, but in that journey, as I was trying to figure things out, uh, you know, I threw a Hail Mary to, to Jim Rutledge, and he answered. And uh, he said, you know, why don't you come to Kentucky? And, uh, you know, this was back in 2003-ish, 2004-ish. Um, you know, first of all, I mean, he wasn't getting that many calls. And, he's, he, you know, he got a lot more calls after I called him. Uh, but to, to invite me out and, you know, basically uh, we became friends. And, you know, he was so gracious with his time. I, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't without him. 
uh, you know, because he helped me, helped me with things you just couldn't read, couldn't find written, uh, you know, protocols and at what temperature do you set your fermentation at uh, for optimal yeast uh, utilization, uh, you know, things like that. You, you can't, couldn't look up. Uh, Jim gave me the answers. You mentioned uh, Jim's Jim's influence on you uh, in another podcast that I listened to, and one part in particular really stood out in that you mentioned that he said you should get into rye. And he did, yeah. I, I want to tease that out a little bit because, aside from the fact that you know Four Roses at that point, as you know, was just kind of revitalizing and coming back to the Four Roses that we think of today, but. Yeah. Um, even even today, Four Roses hasn't produced a rye since 1940s. So right. um, I'm curious how how that conversation went and what you thought of this guy telling you you should create a rye while he's working at a distillery that hasn't created a rye in at that time 70 years. Rather insightful, David, I, I'd have to say. Uh, indeed, uh, where is he coming from? Well, I think, you know, it, it, going back to Jim, and everybody I met early on that had come from Seagram's, uh, you know, there was this uh, a brotherhood of, of people. So Dave Shurek at uh, LeBron Graham, uh, Larry Ebersold at the old Seagram's plant, LDIMGP, um, Greg Metzi, uh, you know, I, I, everybody that I met from Seagram's, they, you know, they loved that place. That place was amazing. Uh, but they knew all their products and they all got cross-trained and, you know, Jim was trained, you know, I don't, I imagine he was trained in Indiana, but wherever the main Seagram's plant was, you know, they learned about rye and Seagram's was a blend house and the blend house made bourbon, made rye, made light whiskey and created Seagram seven, you know, Seagram's VO uh, crown, uh, you know, from uh, up in North. Uh, so they all knew about all those different products that made up those blends. And, you know, that was the number one product for Seagram's. People, you know, zillions of people drank that stuff. They millions of cases of Seagram Seven, and I don't know today who drinks this stuff, but uh, it's still a million cases. But it had the rye in it, and at the idea when we were starting High West and we were going to make bourbon, and I told Jim, and he said, "Well, you know, are you going to lay it down and age it?" And I said, "Oh yeah," and he said, "You know, well, how long? What's your average? You know, how old's it going to be?" And I said, "You know, four years." And he said, well, "How are you going to make payroll from years one through four? And I said, good point. He said, well, you know, I would buy and blend if I were you. And that was the last thing on my mind. Uh, I thought, you, you got to be kidding me. I, I didn't start this to buy somebody else's stuff. I bought it to make bourbon and make my own thing. And he said, well, how are you going to make payroll? And I said, good point. And so he said, you know, but why do bourbon? Everybody's doing a bourbon. You want to be different. And boy, the best rye in the world nobody's ever had is Seagram's rye. And that was the rye that was the flavoring component for, again, Seagram's VO Seagram seven. And, uh, you know, he sent me to the Lawrenceburg distillers plant in Indiana, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. And I met Larry Ebersold, you know, kind of a cold call. And Larry was very gracious to show me around and let me taste the stuff. And I tasted the first rye uh, that I'd ever had. I mean, I had an old overhold. I'd had Jim Beam, but when I tasted the Seagram's rye, Oh, this is nothing like any of the other ryes, 95% rye. And, uh, it was, you know, a no-brainer from the second I tasted it. Like, are, are you kidding me? Nobody drinks this. Why don't you sell it? I asked Larry that. And he says, you know, marketing won't let us sell it. We think it's the best thing since sliced bread. We can't, you know, convince anybody to, buy, to sell it. So I said, well, would you mind if I sold it? And, you know, and I'll tell your story. I'm happy to do that. So, you know, he was gracious enough to sell me some rye. 
uh, you know, I couldn't buy it today. You can't get the stuff hardly, even as sure. a manufacturer. I mean, especially the, uh, some of those early rides that you got to do with like the 16 year olds. Um, oh, have you had them? I have uh, one that I think was from, I want to say it was a gift shop release only that a friend of mine got, uh, uh, you know, we've all got that one friend in whiskey who has that ridiculous collection of all these crazy bottles and he's one of them, yeah. but it's yeah. the, yeah, the 16 year old Rocky mountain, Rocky Mountain Ryan, sixteen Rocky Mountain Yeah, well, it was, yeah. so Larry had some. Uh, in, in fact, our first batch of rye was some rye they shipped to Australia, and it was bought by Fosters, and it was going to be Cougar bourbon and Cougar rye. Hmm. And the, there's the Jim Murray whiskey Bible, and he rated that like hundred points. You know, his perfect bourbon and perfect rye. Well, they decided not to sell it, so they were stuck with all this stuff they didn't want to sell. And Larry said, hey, you know, this stuff's in Australia. Do you want to buy it? And I'm like, you know, they're going to ship it all the way back here. Isn't it going to be expensive? And, uh, you know, sure enough, we did the deal and we were able to buy it and ship it here. And, you know, still way cheaper than what you buy it for today. And this was six-year-old rye. It was unbelievable. And that was our first product. Um, But then there were other ryes. I said, do you have any other stuff, Larry? And he says, well, I do. And he sent me a sample. And it said 16 uh, to 21-year-old on the bottle. And I said, well... Larry, I mean, don't you have it separate as 16 and separate as 21? Can I get the separates? And he says, well, all I got was a sample, but it's it's down at Barton Distillery. If you want to go down there and visit the distiller, I'm sure he'll take you up in the warehouse and you can sample the, the barrels. And I thought, mm, that sounds pretty good. So we go to Barton Distillery uh, in, in you know, where Claremont, where is it? Down in, I, I should know. I was just down down by Jim a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's, it's right across Bardstown. Barstown, Claremont, Boston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all the, the Heaven Hill, they're, they're all down. Anyway, we we went to yeah. Barton, uh, you know, and I, I, there were two different 16-year-olds. One was an 80% rye mash bill, one was a 53% rye mash bill. And then the 21-year-old was a 53% rye mash bill, but it was in used cooperage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, I, I, they're not quite sure why they had it. It was owned, you know, made by Barton, held by Barton, but owned by uh, Hiram Walker. And so it would have gone into Canadian whiskey. Right. And, you know, this stuff would have been, you know, probably diluted down because nobody bought whiskey that old. And it would have been diluted down into, you know, Black Velvet or whatever higher and Walker whiskey at the time. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, here I am saving these amazing whiskeys from being diluted down and blended. And so we, uh, the 116, we blended with uh, the six-year-old LDI, Seagram's Rye. Uh, to become rendezvous 116 um uh was so good i didn't want to s- blend it because it was the 16 year old that you bought in the bottle mm-hmm. the the other 16 was very woody and i thought oh my god i bought all this stuff you know two hundred thousand dollars i'm gonna lose my shirt it's woody but when you blended it with t- uh the rendezvous rye the six-year-old rye it was amazing the wood woodiness went away and it had this incredible mouthfeel body that it gave to the Seagram's rye. And it took, you know, a, an A product to an A plus product because of mixing the two together. And that we, we did that because we didn't want to uh, sell just one product. We, if we created our own blend, no one else could do it. Plus it was where we were putting something special on it, our stamp on it. Uh, so it was kind of a win, win, win from our standpoint, it tasted better. You know, we could say it was ours. Um, and that's kind of the, the story of rendezvous and the story of those ryes that were sent to me as a blend. And Larry wasn't even sure, you know, what they were like. And 
you know, the, the, the important lesson here was uh, the details are important and, you know, what you taste is what you get. So go to the source and taste the source stuff. And, um, that was, became very important part of, uh, everything we did, you know, taste the source, look and feel the source. Don't just take it for somebody's word for it. That's incredible. I mean, this sounds, this sounds incredibly haughty and I don't mean it to, but it's rare now that I get like a story that's really brand new to me or, or one that I really have not heard before. And um, all of that fits into that category. The, <laughs> The idea, I mean, of it, the one that's jumping out at me right now, I'm sure others will jump out at different points, but particularly the idea that, you know, Hiram Walker had rye that they were aging and holding at Barton. And I think this must have been, it's one of my weaknesses. I don't know. I'm not great with like when a brand purchased a brand kind of thing. Yeah, I can tell yeah. you the, the lineages, but not exactly when. But I'm curious because at that point, I don't remember that Hiram and... um and Barton would have been under the same banner, you know, under Sazerac at that point. Maybe they were. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they were. No, Barton was definitely not under Sazerac then. It was on its own. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, I mean, the other amazing thing was that they had this 21-year-old rye and used cooperage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, have you ever heard of a rye or a bourbon and used cooperage? Very rare. Very rare. And what yeah. was it doing? And it, it, we could never really find out why. You know, the theory from Larry Ebersold was perhaps it's startup when you know they shut down when it's hot because mm. oftentimes they don't control the temperature in the fermenter so they'll shut down in the middle of the summer to clean things and reboot things so when they reboot they would start up the distillate and then instead of wasting new wood for a straight whiskey they would have used barrels sitting around they put the first runnings in mm. those used barrels um you know again because it's in used cooperage can't call it straight. Nobody was going to sell that as a straight rye. It could go right. to Canada. They could put it in Canadian all day long, but mm -hmm. you know, then they never used it and it became 21 years old. So go figure. Yeah. And it would have had to be distilled around, you know, early eighties when real, just complete Darth of rye, um, even bourbon at that point is, is really struggling to get by. So that, that's a story I'm really going to have to, I want to dig more into. So I might be, uh, hitting you up with some questions afterwards after I try to find some info on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Long lost stuff. I mean, the 21 year olds is long gone by now. I've got a few bottles course. left in the bunker, of course, but, uh, and, uh, and your address stuff. is, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Lo lovely stuff and use cooperage. And you know, that kind of, that'll tie into some of the stuff later that when we talk about what, uh, Brian nation and I are doing at keeper's heart, sure. and, uh, I'm a big fan of second fill barrel whiskey because uh, you don't have the intensity of the wood flavor. And, you know, can we try rye and bourbon and second fills? Uh, well, you can't call bourbon bourbon from a second fill, but then what's bourbon-like? Uh, sure. But most consumers are smart enough to get that. And, you know, a lovely, very different product. So for, for to be continued later on in the call here. Absolutely. And I'm with you, uh, at least certainly on the tasting notes. I Woody's one of those flavors that I really just don't enjoy. Um, yeah. Tannic to a certain degree, Oh, creaminess, pepperiness, astringency, fine. But once it gets woody, just it's a no for me. But, yeah. Well, certainly if it's out of balance or whatever, astringency yeah. is a bad term. You know, that's kind of the woody for me. But, you know, when you dilute it down, and we learned a lot when blending, because uh, we did have some woody stuff, the 16 year old rise. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, oh my God, what are we going to do with this? Well, you know, I, I remember one of my first meetings with Larry Ebersold, the, the old master distiller at, uh, the Seagram's plant who actually came up with the process for the 95% rye at MGP. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, when I met with him, I 
I said, gosh, you know, I just had a bottle of uh, Russell's Reserve, 10-year-old. And this was before they changed the bottle. It was kind of the old bottle with the turkey on it, you know, whatever. And, right, right. Um, he said, oh, you like the old stuff, do you? And I said, well, it's 10 years old. It says on the bottle. And he says, oh, ha, ha. you know, that stuff ain't 10 years old. They they had a dearth of old whiskey they couldn't get rid of. So they're diluting it out in this Russell's Reserve. And, you know, it's woodier because of that. If it wasn't to his liking, he, you know, he likes stuff about eight years old. And he thought the Russell's Reserve 10-year-old at that point was too woody because it was being diluted with 15, 16-year-old stuff. Uh, but I learned a lot about blending from Larry and Jim. And, you know, particularly, what can you do with that wood? Well, you dilute it out. The solution is dilution. I just had on, um, his episode hasn't come out yet. I think it's a couple of weeks away still. But I just had on Greg Snyder, um, now at, at Chickencock. But uh, of course, he's the one who created Russell's Reserve. And, you know, talked all about how their problem was not that they had too much whiskey, it was that they had too much old whiskey. Too much old whiskey, yeah. And they had to figure out a way to get rid of it. So that makes perfect sense. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the best thing about this hobby, honestly, is just talking to all you know people like you, like Greg, like all these people who have the stories. And when the stories line up, you know, one point in the story lines up to that point in another story. And getting them connected it's one of my favorite things connect the dots that's right that's a, exactly. you're on a journey here to connect some dots exactly all right so moving ahead because we do want to spend uh, you know a good time on on keeper's heart that's um, right that's you right. know moving ahead uh, through through your journey um moving ahead by stepping back a bit so you come from a biochemical and business background <laughs> and a biochem for undergrad and then the business um degree that you pursued afterwards uh i'm Curious because I also have a biochem background originally before I went heretical and went to medieval studies instead. Uh, did did you bring, you know, what did you bring from the biochemical background in your time at Genentech uh, to High West when you were starting it up? Or did it really just enhance your understanding of the processes that you were embarking upon? Well, I mean, certainly, uh, I, I... I think any anybody's time in a science discipline it, it teaches you you know rigor, uh, systematic approach to solving a problem, uh, measurement. Uh, so if if making good whiskey is really really hard to do, and you know, the way to make good whiskey or good spirit or any, a good product for that matter anywhere or any type of product is uh, a systematic approach to it because uh, there's a hundred places to screw up. And, you know, you, you need to learn the scientific method where you vary one thing at a time, because if you vary 10 things at a time, you're not going to solve your problem and figure out what the root cause is. So, um, you know, I, do I remember a lot of the biochemistry? I mean, a little bit, but not really, but what I do remember is the approach to solving a problem. Um, it just happens to apply very well to, you know, a chemical process. And, you know, luckily I had some biochemistry and I knew a little bit about chemicals and, um, I, I think the biochemistry really gave me more passion for the yeast and what yeast can do and how to control yeast. But again, the same thing, um, you know, you, when you make whiskey, you throw yeast into your bin and, you know, the, the starting tip matters a whole lot. And, you know, the way to really understand that is to do one at 80 degrees and one at 79 degrees and one at 78 degrees and understand in, in a, a one to two degree variation and set point for your fermentation for your yeast has a big impact on the final product and you know you're not going to figure that out if you're not thinking that way and if you vary the temperatures all over the place and 
you know, just do it whatever's ambient, you're going to have a very different product. So uh, I think it just taught me to be rigorous and it, it teaches you the details are very important. Absolutely. So that takes care of the the biochemical background, which I, I love the way you describe it, you know, bringing the scientific method and and more so the process idea to it, to figuring out the problems. Um, I love that. So bringing that to the business side of things now, <clears throat> how did the business degree kind of move you forward? Well, I, most of my life was in, you know, lab or, or you know, development uh, prior to the business degree. And uh, the business degree kind of gives you a shortcut to, you know, stuff you'd learn ultimately anyway, if you were in a business and, you know, to understand what an income statement is and a balance sheet. And uh, uh, those are just different languages for how you translate n- the numbers of business because ultimately it boils down to cash flow. And if you don't know how to manage your cash flow, you really can't run your business. But there's a million things on the way to cash flow. And uh, the language of business is pretty important to understand. It doesn't mean you need it, but it sure helps you avoid a lot of mistakes or save a lot of time learning the things. So, you know, that was one. And then, you know, at business school, they teach you an approach to strategy. Was it, it isn't necessarily what you learn in biochemistry. Uh, you know, you learn scientific discipline and approach to solving problems and experimental method. Um, but, you know, how to do strategy and take an organization from you know, uh, A to Z, um, you know, that's a whole different thing. And if, you know, you read case studies and copy what someone else did, it just ramps you up faster. But it's it's nothing magic that anybody can't learn on the job. It just helps you do it a little bit faster, crams it all into two years. So. Fair enough. You know, I mean, the good part is you uh, you know, depending on what school you go to, I, I was lucky to to get into a very good one. And, you know, all that really means is that the other people around you are generally twice as smart as you are. And, uh, you know, I felt like the dumbest guy in business school, to be honest with you. People are so smart. Um, but, you know, you learn from those people. And that's, uh, uh, gosh, you can't replace that with anything. There's an old adage that you're the, you're the average of the people around you or the people you surround yourself yeah. with. So if that's you've got a couple people bumping that curve up nothing wrong with that nothing um, wrong with seeing smart people in your life it sure teaches you a lot yeah 100 absolutely uh, so in the uh the last connecting step before going to keeper's heart so this is on the the bourbon with friends podcast and um, i think this is what threw off my timeline of when you left high west a little bit but um you mentioned on that podcast <clears throat> that you know once constellation purchased high west um, I want to phrase it right. You weren't used to not being the boss anymore at the <laughs> company. Right. Um, so there's a couple things to go into with that. But um, the first one is, you know, what were you able to to take from your experience at High West, uh, and how? Well, let's start there. You know, what were you able to take from your experience at High West, and really bring forward with you? I mean, you know, David, that's a, that's a fairly broad question, and I'll I'll try to to narrow that. Uh, um, you know, first of all, starting your own business, I mean, there's nothing like it. Uh, you know, it, 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 on one hand, it was my own business, but on the other hand, you know, I had 100 other people involved, from many many investors to you know, we had 200 employees. So you know, was it my business? Yeah, but you know, it was mine with a whole lot of other people. And, you know, I think the importance of uh, uh, the people you hire, mm. uh, the people you work with, uh, you know, the, the old adage, hire slowly, fire quickly. Uh, I mean, I, you, 
you can't. It's just irrefutable um, in, in business because, you know, having bad eggs around is, is, is one thing. And if you have them around more, more than they should be, that's a big deal. But taking the time slowly to carefully hire smart people is probably the most important job a boss can do. Um, you know, it's a lot of fun. And sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong. Uh, but but that's one. And, you know, second to I was lucky to work in some other big companies, Amgen and Genentech, which were both fortune, you know, uh, top 10 companies to work for with very, very smart people and, you know, processes to the, to the business. And, you know, to take some of those processes that you got to learn and apply them in your own um, in developing a culture and developing strategy, uh, you know, that's a lot of fun. And, you know, the, the takeaway of, you know, there's big businesses, they do some things amazingly well. And thank God, you know, everybody ought to have the chance to work at a great big company because uh, they're fun. You learn a lot. Uh, but then everybody ought to have a chance to work in a small company because that's a lot of fun, too, because you just move a whole lot faster. And, um, you know, I, that was second to none enjoyable starting your own business and, you know, working with great people that are passionate and the, the passion so much easier to, to cultivate in a small company. Um, you know, because the currencies of a small business is cash, but the other currency is passion. And, uh, you know, we were able to have a very passionate whole employee base because everybody loved whiskey and you know, making that your mission uh, was so much fun to have people around. Everybody just loved whiskey. And, you know, moreover, we were in the West and loving whiskey and loving the West. And so having a Western whiskey, what a lot of fun. I mean, it was, it was a great, great, uh, pleasure to work with the people that were passionate about that and you know that's second to none working with lots of passionate people and so there one of the reasons i asked too is that um there's and correct me again if i'm wrong here there is a gap between when you left high west and when you joined o'shaughnessy to oh, sell sure so um what did you do in that gap did you take some time off at least well, indeed. I mean, I, I, I have a couple kids and, uh, you know, well, one, I'm still senior in high school, but they were both in, you know, grade school, high school then. And I traveled a heck of a lot with High West. And, you know, my number one goal was to be around them uh, as much as I could and not be on the road. Uh, so to, you know, see the one kid finish high school and my, my, my son's about to graduate high school now. Um, spending time with the kids. I mean, you know, that's, uh, um, priceless. And I gave up a lot of that uh, in the years at High West. So well, that was number one. But I, I, I had started immediately working as a, a consultant or advisor with uh, three or four of the com companies, small startups, just being a, an advisor, mentor, helper, coach uh, to some other CEOs. And that, that was a lot of fun. But, you know, I didn't have to do it full time. and um, I didn't have to make payroll and do performance reviews, just being helpful and, you know, keeps you sharp and having fun and um, you know, they were also fun companies making, uh, you know, an American single malt, uh, making Hawaiian rum. Uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. So I started that quite right away. Can you mention which one was making the Hawaiian rum? Uh, Kuleana. Kuleana. Okay. Well, they're on the big island and uh, wonderful product uh, and agricole. But, you know, in the meantime, uh, my suggestion to them was uh, nothing that was original to me. It was a la Jim Rutledge. Gosh. Are you going to age that? How are you going to make payroll? Why don't you take some rums and blend them so they are kind of doing the high west thing to rum and, and blending a couple of different rums to create a new innovative product that's actually very tasty and well-balanced and, again, educating people on what that's all about. 
Beautiful. I, I asked specifically about that one uh, because I have a couple of friends now in Hawaii. Um, one thing about this industry and this hobby, you notice you make friends all around the country, all around the world very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I will have to reach out to them and see if any of them have tried uh, Kuleana and particularly the agricole because I love agricoles. So they're only selling a, a Blanco now. It's uh, not an age, but anyway, you know. Hey, we'll get there. We'll get there. So one of the biggest questions that came up as I was, uh, you know, doing the research, making the outline for this episode was that, so you, you leave high West. Um, there may be other reasons, but let's say the primary one, you're not used to being your own. You're not your own boss anymore. Um, brought the company to a certain point, took a couple of years off, but then a couple of years later, you are at, O'Shaughnessy distilling. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And I think it's fair to say that even though it sounds like from all the podcasts and interviews I listened to that you're quite enjoying your time there, um, you still aren't your own boss anymore. <laughs> well, so, you know, had, had they had they uh, had they sell it to you and had they bring it to you so that you were still willing to come on board? Um, indeed, I mean that's that's a very fair question. Well, you know. I'd say unlike the other companies I'm working with now, uh, I mean, O'Shaughnessy, uh, Keeper's Heart has managed to pull together, you know, kind of the dream team, holy grail of, uh, well, if if you had to say, Dave, you know, what what's your ideal set of circumstances to work with another organization or outfit? They did it. You know, one is people. And, you know, there, there's a theme for me, A plus people just make the job, that make the world go around, make it easy to get out of bed. You know, these guys are all, super smart they love what they do uh, and they're good at what they do um so the, the from the ceo mike duggan uh you know the the whole the one that started of course was brand nation so uh patrick and michael shaughnessy the founders of, of the company and the brand uh, uh fabulous people they called me i don't know 10 years ago and when i was at high west and said we're thinking of doing this you know what advice would you give and you know i spewed off some stuff and never thought twice about it until they called me, you know, several years later and they said, well, we were doing it. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, we uh, hired Brian nation. And I said, you know, you gotta be kidding me. This guy had a plum job at uh, Jameson, Perno Ricard, Middleton. What the heck's he moving to Minnesota for? Uh, you know, it's not for the winners. So, uh, but anyway, you know, it, they told me the whole story and you know, they, they've pieced together just a beautiful, uh, business plan of all the right elements um you know first of all starting with the right amount of money second starting with great people uh third the brand idea and the product ideas taking the best of irish and american and blending them together and so we'll talk about the products later here but you know we've got the you know something i thought you know you got to be kidding me mixing irish pot and bourbon and rye and i i, I really didn't think it'd be possible uh, let me, the punchline here is it's possible and it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, but then the other ideas that Brian and I had when we got together. So, you know, I flew to Minneapolis and Brian and I met and I met him, I don't know, 2012 when I got to go to Jameson when, you know, other companies were courting High West. And, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really care about the business guys, but I did really enjoy meeting the master distillers. And I thought, God, this would really be fun to, you know, be part of Paranova Card and be part of work with these guys at the Middleton Distillery because, you know, they're fabulous, superb people and they're Irish and they're fun and, you know, to but meld the different styles. God, that'd be fun. Well, that, it kind of came true here um, in retrospect, but, you know, I've got the title uh, 
liquid collaborator and advisor. Let, let me tell you what, that's the best job in the world. I don't have to make payroll. I don't have to performance reviews. Um, we get to taste whiskey, taste different components and uh, dream about the future. And, you know, it doesn't get much better than that with passionate, smart people. All right. So what you're then, saying then, is- you know, I, I didn't mention Patrick and Michael, the the two oh. founders. I mean, they're you know, brilliant, uh, uh, just unbelievable uh, forces in nature, smart, hard driving, you know, it's just fun being around them. So that's, uh, you know, it's kind of ideal, hard to, hard to beat. All right. Fair enough. So what I'm hearing you saying is you were willing to give up the cockpit for a place on the ride, as long as it was the right people leading the plane. If you got the right pilot, that's exactly right. Right. Pilot. All right. And I, I agree with you uh, in terms of, of Brian. I mean, I, I, again, I listened to a lot of podcasts and interviews in preparation for this and from both your interviews as well as Brian's and hearing his story of how he was kind of convinced to come from, as you said, this very plum job at the Middleton Distillery to come over to Minnesota. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Minneapolis. Right. Yeah. I mean, what, a, what um, an act of courage, and, huh? Seriously, an act of courage. What a hell of a sales pitch that must have been as well to get him there. Um, again, with no disparagement, man, that's truly, I mean it. That would, must have been a hell of a sales pitch to get him over. So, well, that's it, right. You know, one day you'll meet Patrick or Michael and uh, you, yeah. you'll get they're just, just super from the heart people. And, uh, you know, again, that's very easy to hang out with somebody that's from the heart. So, well, definitely, definitely. And you, they got to bring together, as you said, a dream team. You got you from your history at High West, as well as consulting. Brian from his history at all the brands that you mentioned. Um, you've got people from Old Elk, people from, uh, I think, from That's Stranahan's, right. I want to say. Stranahan's Old Elk. So Brian's team. Uh, yeah. Super, super folks that, you know, have, uh, you know, a, a bit younger, but, uh, you know, young and smart and driven and passionate. So uh, with good experience at Old Elk and. You know, having worked with Greg Metzine, uh, yeah, good folks. Absolutely. And um, we should note, Owen, at this point of recording, Owen Martin has just left Stranahan's um, for, I think we'll find out shortly for where, but uh, he also helped on that article with American Single Malt. So just wanted to give oh. a quick shout out on that. Yeah, very cool. So as you, you kind of already answered this question as to, you know, how they presented the idea to you. Um, and I loved a term that you put towards towards uh, Michael and Patrick, which was that they were fabulously relentless in their, yeah. in their pursuit. Yeah. Um, so when you were deciding to take on this role, of course you had the dream team put in front of you. Um, they were able to show you these, ideas, a path forward, um, is it a great business plan and a strategy? Was there, was there anything that kind of held you back from taking it? Because, and the, the reason I asked that is because in the term fabulously relentless, that says to me that as much as you wanted to take it, or as much as you eventually did take it, there was some hesitancy. And I'm just curious uh, what that was. I don't know. If, I don't know if there's any hesitancy in that. I just, I, Fabulous is a pretty positive term. Relentless can be positive or negative, but I think for me, relentless in their pursuit of an excellent product. I mean, excellent products are a priority objective. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't want to do anything unless you're going to be going for an excellent product. If you're going for a, you know, you, 
the the world can sell a whole lot of a shitty product that that was not of interest to me. I wanted to make great stuff, and those guys are relentless and wanting to make great stuff. So you know they want to make a great business, and nothing wrong with that for me. So there's nothing negative in that. No, I mean hesitation was could I commit the time that they want, and you know that's something we're still trying to figure out because I am enjoying my. Uh, I don't you know I don't live in Minneapolis, so I am kind of remote working in a sense. And, uh, like the workers of today that don't want to change the remote work. I don't want to change it too much. Fair, fair. Uh, all right. Then in that case, you know, let's, let's dive right into it. So how as liquid collaborator and advisor, how do you work with, uh, with Brian on the day to day basis? Well, I got the best job in the world. Like I say, um, I, you know, I get to taste a lot of stuff sitting with Brian and his team. Um, so, you know, the, the priority objective is to the, you know, design the pipeline you know, the current products and the, the perfect the current products and design the pipeline and then perfect those. So, you know, we got to working on the Keeper's Heart uh, two initial products, which are blends, you know, Irish plus pot plus grain and then bourbon plus pot plus grain. Uh, you know, honestly, I didn't, I really didn't think it would work uh, until we got together and did it. You know, how much fun is that to get together and taste these different blends? And you'd be amazed how much the product changes mixing the ingredients and uh, you know it's been a fun part to be part of the team you know our approach at high west was to be very transparent open and educational because education comes from uh, learning and appreciating the 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 pieces of the puzzle the details are important Mm -hmm. and i was very heartened when brian and mike the ceo you know liked the idea of having the components and having people taste the components uh, before they taste the final blend as part of the education of helping people appreciate the product. And that's when you take a tour at their distillery. Now you'll get to taste the components and that's a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, you know, cause I wasn't an expert at Irish pot by any means. I wasn't an expert at Irish grain. Um, you know, I'm far from an expert now, but we sure have tasted a lot of samples that kind of make me a reasonable expert at the blends and what a lot of fun that was. And then insightful of how much things can change when you mix them together and, you know, we learned that at High West with, you know, mixing the old woody 16-year-old with the young LDI rye. We learned it when we did Campfire, which was blending a peated scotch with a bourbon and a rye. You know, the same thing applies to the Keeper's Heart. You know, this lovely pot still whiskey mm-hmm. and this lovely grain and mixing bourbon or rye into the mix. And the, the, the proportions are very different for both products. Uh, you know, one, deliberately so, but two, to, to create the best flavor. And, you know, how much more fun does it get? So back to your original question, what, what's one objective is working with those guys and as in a team, you know, I don't have the best ideas by any means. And some days my taster's off, but, you know, we come together as a team and do the blends, taste them together and have a debate. And that's a lot of fun. I really enjoy that. So, and when you're doing it with the nice people, it multiplies, it makes it even more fun. So Absolutely. kind of the best job in the world, David. I mean, I, I won't lie. I've thought about what it would be like to be in, in the industry. And, uh, that does sound pretty damn inviting, but that that's for another day. But uh, to your point, you're trying take that job when you get it, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, To your point with, with trying all of the blends, um, if not, if not overly familiar with the, with the, uh, components, you did get to try the blends, and and Brian said on the uh, the liquor store podcast that it, you guys tried upwards of 120 to 140 blends before one was settled on for that original Irish plus American. 
Yeah, I, I, I came in halfway. So, I, I, you know, okay. whatever he says is the number, right? I, and I, it was probably 40 that I remember tasting. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's stupid to think that, is it really that different? Can't anybody come up with a mixture of these things? Well, you know, when you're getting into the details and you're with people that care about the details, yeah, that's, believe it or not, that's kind of how it works. But, you know, think of all this, David, I'm kind of getting thirsty. So I'm going to pour myself, my whistle's a little uh, dry. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wet the whistle here a little bit. So um, I know the video is not going to be on the, the thing, but I'm just showing the picture of the bottle here. for. Sure. I will, I'll join you with the same one. So this is going to be the Keeper's Heart Irish Plus American. Yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't know if tasting was part of this or not, but uh, I'm, I'm at your... I'm at your beck and call if uh, if it is or if it's not. It absolutely can be. Um, I usually have a dram or two with with guests on there. So, cheers. Drinking while working is a is a pleasure. Cheers, David. Nice to meet you, and I sure appreciate your uh, in depth homework and, and insightfulness on the questions which the homework led to. So the details are important. I appreciate that. So, hey, we're only halfway through. We'll see if you say that at the end too. <laughs> Fair enough. So this is now my my second taste of this whiskey. And oh, fair enough. It's my millionth by now, but uh, wow. <laughs> don't get sick of it. And you know, I I I think of this as a, you know, there's so much going on here, and it's so complex. Uh, I I find something new every time. Yeah. Anyway, I I quite enjoy it. It's been a lot of fun. No, I really did too. Um, I I have my formal notes from the first tasting. I'm going to do the tasting either tonight or tomorrow to kind of make it <clears> quote unquote, <throat> quote unquote official. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean the the notes that come across are interestingly. I'll put it this way: I can taste each component, but it's in a good way. Like I can taste each component, but you can also tell that the sum is greater than the parts. Well, that's that's yeah. the hope, of course. That that's the idea, and you know, hopefully that that that's true and it's balanced. Absolutely, and uh, for me, one of my favorite aspects of Irish pot still whiskey is just that beautiful orchard bouquet that you can get. Mm. You know, everything from the fruits to the orchard wood being split to um, sometimes a little bit of like wood smoke from an apple smoke apple wood smoking, um, and. Of course, with the pot still, also a little black pepper in the back of the throat that hits towards the end. And uh, I don't drink Irish whiskey quite as much as I used to, but I've started to appreciate some of them. Like I'll I'll usually go in a kick when things come out. When spots came mm-hmm. out last year, tried all the spots. When a new Jameson release came out, tried that. Um, but this again, it had the Irish the pot still, the grain whiskey as you mentioned the green Irish green whiskey and then uh, the American rye whiskey. So, and also the, as you said, it's not visual, but I can tell you it is incredibly oily and viscous on the glass. And I just love that when you can see all the tendrils in the Glencairn and tell yeah. that that is going to feel great on the tongue and give great flavors. That is exactly right. Yeah, the the pot. And I, I was certainly not an expert at the pot, but what I really enjoy about it is the the body that it adds to the blend, and 
it, it gives you this oily long finish uh, and it really enhances the rye and the bourbon and the, and the other product. Uh, but I, I find that the, the pot, you know, takes the bourbon or the rye to another level. And that's one thing I really enjoyed about it. For me, it went from, it went from that strong apple, like especially a golden apple with the skin kind of pressed for cider going from there into this bright grated lemon zest classic Irish whiskey notes. Um, even got some soda bread and uh, with soda bread, specifically with the dark raisins and a little bit of butter in there where you get some bitterness, a little acidity from the bicarbonate and of course the butteriness from the butter. And this is all joined by some pears at the end it goes into a lemon custard you know, it, as you said, it's complex. It keeps evolving. And as good as each of these components could have been on their own, I think the blending of them, the skillful blending, really does elevate each part and allow them to shine on a on a carousel, as it were. That, you know, and it's, it's not an expensive whiskey either, David. And that's, you know, for me, yeah, it, the, the components, the, the blend is much more expensive than the individual components. Uh, but you take an inexpensive components and create them an inexpensive blend. It's actually really good. So I'm, I'm, it's, it's my house whiskey now, you know, uh, but you know, mainly cause I like it, not cause I have to, cause I got plenty of whiskeys in my cabinet, but you know, for me, you mentioned kind of the Irish soda bread. I, I have kind of a sweet biscuits the you know, that you buy in the package and you have with tea or something. Mm -hmm. um, the, the lemon zest just jumps at you. And that comes from the pot. I love the lemon zest in here mm -hmm. and, citrusy you know appley kind of tart appley thing going on i call it lemon zest but mm -hmm. also candied ginger that comes from the rye you get these spices from the rye but the, also these floral notes then the nose uh I love, and that comes from the rye just wonderful floral and that's the ldi 95 percent rye fabulous product for blending but really taken to another level with the oiliness of the pot you know i swear to you i was going to write candy ginger in my notes, <laughs> I thought about it and I was like, this is, this is what it tastes like. And I didn't put it in there for some reason, but you're right. That candy ginger is beautiful. It's, it's sweet. It's a little bit sour, a little bit. Um, got some tang course, to it though, you know? Some, yeah. Little some tang tang. yeah. Maybe in your peppery notes. And, you know, yeah. That's usually come up with the same thing here, but uh, yeah, it usually yeah. crosses over in that pepperiness a little bit. It's all about uh, the pepperiness there is always about where it hits you know, like it's black pepper usually hits on the tip of my tongue, white yeah. pepper, a little more in the front. Um, ginger usually hits a little back and under the tongue, but it's all, like you said, it, it's all about where you're experiencing, what you're experiencing it. So we could have the exact same notes written in completely different words. That's right. That's it's half the beauty of this. So with, uh, so for, for right now, as you said, this whiskey it's uh, from the Irish pot still from Great Northern, the uh, the rye from uh, now MGP. Yeah. The uh, talk a little bit about the uh, the grain whiskey component. Well, grains from Great Northern too, um, and you know, well, for your your listeners, grain whiskey. I mean, not everybody knows what it is. Uh, it's sure. in you know, uh, if you take all the world's whiskeys and I'm, I'm going to do, you know, sort of rough math in my head. Most of the whiskey produced in the world is a blend of heavy congener stuff and light congener stuff. Most people don't know that, but 
Um, maybe 99% of the whiskey in the United States is uh, high conjugate stuff, straight whiskey. There's very little light whiskey or grain whiskey that people know of here other than in Seagram 7. And, you know, I don't know anybody that drinks that, even though they sell a zillion cases of it. Um, but, it, you know, scotch, 90% of the world's scotch is blended scotch. So you take grain and dilute it down. Um, 100% of Canadian is blended bourbon or blended rye, where you're diluting down a high conjugate spirit with light whiskey. So our light whiskey is their grain whiskey. And, you know, they're all made about the same way. It's a distillate of about 190 proof. Uh, so it's almost vodka, 189, 189.5 proof, something like that. I, I think vodka is 192. Yeah, it has um, to be 190, I think, to, you know, 190, as, yeah, as you said, to get all that stuff out of there. So it tastes tasteless. But, so it's, it's you know, it's, it's one degree shy of being GNS, but, you know, that one degree has a little bit of flavor, but they they tend to stick those in, in Canada, second fill or third fill or fourth fill barrels. In mm -hmm. Ireland and Scotland, they'll stick them in third, fourth, and fifth fill barrels. Um, and so it's a very light spirit that's heavy on the vanilla, and it's a great palate to paint on. And so... Uh, the grain in addition into this really changes things. And it's a great enhancer to the, uh, to both blends. It's the exact metaphor I was going to throw in there and you stole it. And I'm glad you did, which was the, uh, the idea that it's a canvas to paint on. Canvas um, to paint. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. lovely stuff yeah. on its own. I mean, it's yeah. not my favorite thing on its own, but it's okay, but yeah. it really is a nice uh, enhancement to things. And um, yeah, it, it yeah, gives it the other two. Yeah, it gives the other two, as you said, it gives some body, it gives uh, a little more vanilla uh, character to it. Um, and I think it's a beautiful bridge between the two styles of whiskey that allow them to to play nicely in the same sandbox. It does. And, you know, depending on the bourbon of the rides, it's quite different addition of the grain to make that happen. Yeah. And was this um, grain whiskey, uh, you know, all, all corn, all barley? I believe the Great Northern is all corn. It, it, I think it's 99 corn, 1% barley, but you know, I, I could be wrong on that. So. All right. I, I'll only hold you to that about 50%. So that's no problem at all. Um, fair enough. Fair. So I'm going to look it up here while we're talking. I, I know I wrote it down here somewhere in my notes. But... Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, while you look that up, I'll say, I agree with you that green whiskey is a little underappreciated, maybe a lot underappreciated. Um, it's, particularly by American consumers. We think of straight bourbon, straight rye, straight whiskeys. And that's what we're taught is quote unquote better. Yeah. Until you realize that, like you said, so much of the world's whiskey that you're drinking is at least part grain whiskey. And, you know, part of Johnny Walker is grain whiskey. It's the best selling whiskey in the world outside of India. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the blended whiskeys that we take for granted are also Green whiskeys. They're blended green whiskeys. Um, and then the other point was to your point about the Seagram Seven. I also don't know who is drinking it, but you're right. They sell millions of cases a year. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Millions of cases a year. I mean, it's dying. Yeah. They sell less yeah. and less a year. It's also a very different product now than it used to be because it used to be uh, uh, they would put uh, their light whiskey uh, was aged in second fill and third fill barrel and then the fourth fill they would age seagram's gin but mm -hmm. I, I think they use less of the light whiskey now and they use gns and they add some coloring in so it's a different product now anyway I mean, hell, I, had a, that? I had a friend ask for a seven and seven and i said you know do you know what that is 
really like where that came from he's like no no idea people don't realize it's a seagram seven and the seven up yeah well in fact i was with a, a gentleman this weekend we were on an old ranch in utah and the owner of the ranch he's 70 years old cowboy that's what he was drinking seven and seven <laughs> so there you go it's much older target audience that's drinking it for sure fair enough, fair enough. it is quite refreshing in the summer too so i'd imagine uh Get some hot Utah nights. Does it get really hot in Utah? I've only been there once, so I can't really. Well, it, it, you know, Utah has a, a desert, and so it uh, gets very hot in the desert. And Utah also has, uh, uh, you know, I live at 7,000 feet, mm-hmm. and so we're in the mountains. So it does get a little cooler here. So not very hot in the uh, uh, summertime in where I live, Park City. Last time I was in Utah, took a six and a half week trip 15 years ago um, and just did the, the National Park Trail kind of almost directly down from Banff and Jasper in Canada. Just drove straight down to Vegas. Oh, yeah. Hit all the parks in between. So in Utah, um, hit Zion, Moab, Arches, um, Bryce Canyon, which I think is in Utah. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That's yeah. that's all in Utah. So it's all very beautiful yeah. place. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous! I, I I really encourage people to go visit these places. They're just absolutely stunning, and bring some whiskey with you. You know, that's, legally. Well, you can get it here in Utah too now. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the to double a little bit deeper into the into the original um, product, so the Irish and American. Um, you know, for now, as you said, this is uh, this is sourced from Nor- Great Northern from MGP. Um. Oh, I'm sorry. I had to write in my note. Yeah. So, 95% corn and 5% malted barley for the green whiskey. So, sorry about uh, that. Well, 99, 99 it one. Is, I think it is 991. Okay. Something like so that. I'll, I'll, I'll confirm that later today. No worries. No worries. I'll, I'll put a little plug in here. No worries. So, at, um, at High West, as you said, you prioritize the story and the transparency. In your products and you know so far it seems like you've been able to do the same at keeper's heart and it, you know o'shaughnessy uh distilling and i'm curious if you feel like you've been able to really do that as you want to you know to the full extent um and yeah let's start with that question do you feel like you've been able to keep transparent to the same extent you'd like to oh absolutely i mean i, I don't I, i'm not the only secret we have is what the ratios are on the blends. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're absolutely deliberate about that secret. Cause there's gotta be some special sauce that, you, you know, <laughs> you have to have some mystery somewhere, you know, you kind of fall out of love with things. So um, sure. I, I couldn't even tell you what the ratios are anyway. So that's uh, cause I, 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 as soon as I see them, I forget them. And I, I don't remember what they are. I can taste it and kind of tell you roughly, but um, yeah, no, I mean, every, ever since we had discussions with uh, you know the the O'Shaughnessy's and Mike and, and Brian um we were all in on we we've all agreed on just about everything so it's been about the easiest relationship I think I've ever had so and you know it's pretty easy to say gosh be transparent how can you argue that when the consumer is screaming for it and you know it, it wasn't even an argument we just all said yeah that makes perfect sense so there you go no it, it is a great thing to start from the beginning with that it's as you said, consumers are demanding that more and more, um, and not just you know nerds like me, like and my friends, you know, real 
general consumers are interested where their whiskey is coming from. Well, that's right. You know, I mean, probably 70% of Americans really don't care, but you know, 30% of Americans, a big audience, and a lot of those care and they're spending a little more money for their whiskey. So, you know, it's just not a big deal and you're not really hiding any secrets anyway. So, yeah. True. True. Uh, With the, so right now you've got this setup. Is there a plan going forward that you'd like to keep the setup same, you know, sourcing from these, uh, to very large distilleries, getting the product you want and blending it to that specification? Um, or are you planning to move some of that production into the the newly built distillery? Well, I mean, I, I think we have two hits right now and there really wouldn't be any reason to change. So, you know, the only reason you change if the other company said, you know, we're not going to sell it anymore. But you know, other than that, yeah, I mean, why, why would you change? It's great stuff. The inputs are great. They're well-known producers of high quality product. Um, so no reason to change. Sure. So, I mean, that does bring up the question then, if you've got two of those hits and assuming you won't need to change them. So what's going to be coming out of that newly built distillery? Well, I mean, that's the, that's the fun sitting around talking about the, the pipeline. And, uh, you know, I, I'd say the fun part of the job is dreaming a bit and, you know, the, Patrick and Michael were, you know, guys, you guys come up with a, a, a pipeline that has Irish and American written all over it. And, and, you know, there's innovations and, it, but, you know, first and foremost should taste good. Um, and, you know, the, the idea Brian and I came up with was Irishizing American whiskey and Americanizing Irish whiskey. So what does that mean? Well, you know, we've got the two blends and that's mixing Irish and American together. That's not really Irishizing or Americanizing. That's just come up with the blends and, Make sure they taste good. Well, they taste pretty good. We'll have to pour the bourbon here in, in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got these this triple pot uh, setup. And you know, one of the things I really loved is, well, we know there's one triple pot setup in the United States. That's at uh, LeBron Grand Woodford Reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't really, I mean, you can buy their triple pot stuff, but it's in small quantities. LeBron Grand Woodford Reserve is not 100% triple pot. It's a mixture of Old Forester and uh, triple pot, as you know. Well, we want to come out with a, a true triple pot bourbon, a true triple pot rye. Um, and, you know, that'll be the Irish sizing of it, a triple pot. But we want it to be straight rather than most Irish pot is not a straight spirit. Uh, it's not distilled to below 80 percent alcohol or 160. It's distilled uh, to like 80, 85 to 87 percent alcohol, which is what's at 175 or something. I can't do the math. Of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Irish pot whiskey here would be called light whiskey because uh, we don't have the term grain whiskey yeah. we have light whiskey and light whiskey is anything above 160 to 190 right right so uh, when we um, americanize or irishize american whiskey that's doing the triple pot on a bourbon triple pot on a rye we're doing that right now and the distillates are wonderful uh, but we're trying to keep them straight on americanizing irish whiskey we're making an Irish pot, triple pot with a malted barley and barley, uh, but we're trying to have that be a straight, so we're distilling it below 80% ABV. Gotcha, okay. And so it'll be a higher congener whiskey, so it'll be differentiated from a uh, true Irish pot, and you know, Brian and I happen to think it will, could be more flavorful because you're having a higher congener spirit. So anyway, it's putting a little twist on Irish pot uh, where you're Americanizing it, but again, higher conjure. And I make fun of Brian that, you know, their pot 
whiskey is light whiskey in America. Let's make a real whiskey and make a high conjure whiskey. You know, it's kind of stupid picking on them on that, but our goal is flavor. And, you know, can we have a, a flavorful riff on an Irish whiskey? That's the idea. Hey, what's a good professional relationship if you can't tease each other a little bit, you know? Well, that's the beauty of Irish. Uh, you know, I, Brian's the funniest guy on the planet. And he's laughing at everything. And, you know, how much more fun does it get to go to work and laugh all day long with a guy like that? So it's kind exactly. of fun. Exactly. Yeah. And there's also a great parallel here uh, that I want to bring in, which is you're distilling up to around 160 proof. <clears throat> that's the, that's also the maximum proof that's put forward right now for American single malts standards of identity. Yeah, fair enough. And, and but most, most yeah. Scottish single malts are straights. Mm-hmm. As an, in a distillate, because it's a double pot system and a double pot, you know, it's hard to get above 80% ABV in a double pot system. Right, right. Yeah. You're not going to get into those, uh, those vodka like levels with anything short of a coffee still or a straight column still. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, making a light whiskey on a double system, it's that, that third pot makes it a light whiskey on a double pot. So most single malts right. are, are absolute straight distillates. They just don't put them in new wood, but they're, they're straight distillates for sure. Right, right. And that the new versus the used wood is, is a big component of that. Cause I asked uh, Steve Hawley about, you know, why, why have this measure for American single malt that goes up to 160, whereas the rest of the whiskey landscape uh, minus light whiskey has to be no higher, distilled no higher than 160, but enter the barrel is no higher than 125. Right. Um, and you said that it's because, as you said, a lot of distillers in Scotland, Ireland, I'm sure around the world, outside of the U.S., distill higher, partly to get more volume, partly to get some different flavors, um, but also because when you're dealing with a second, third, fourth fill barrel, you need a different level of alcohol and ethanol in order to start breaking down the remaining chemicals that something at, let's say, maybe a 125 entry proof wouldn't break down in the same way. Because would have too much water in, in the mash in not the mash bowl, too much water in the, the the volume of liquid. So I'm I'm fascinated to see what comes out of the new of the new distillery and to see the characteristics of it, both on its oh, own. I, I haven't read the, the latest. So are they trying to open up that 125 barrel fill proof and and make it higher? Uh, so not for not for the original class of whiskey. So that's why um, single malt commission is pressing for the standards of identity to be a separate class of whiskey. So rather than it being the same class as, you know, if it's 51% X grain, it's Y whiskey. Um, instead, the single malt will be its own class where it can be, you know, used, used or new cooperage. It's not specified in the proposal. It can be distilled and enter up to 160 proof. Uh, so, oh, distilled and enter 160. Okay, I, I yeah. missed that. So, so, I mean, so that's I agree yeah, with that's the distilling thing. below 160, but the entry, you know, mm-hmm. it, in Scotland they do it because they're cheap, and you know, <laughs> it's it's a lot more profitable to enter and above 125. So the chemical argument, I kind of buy. It's a clever uh, aside that you know, I think the whiskey tastes much better post barrel if you're diluting it down less with water. So you're mm-hmm. diluting down something that went in at 135. You're adding more water to get it down to what you're going to drink. So mm-hmm. I actually like it at a lower entry proof, like 110. But you know, for what it's worth. I, I have to say, I usually agree with you, particularly with American whiskeys. Um, I, I 100% agree with you, especially bourbons, especially mm-hmm. bourbons, because that corn 
when it's done right, can give you a great oily mouthfeel and great character, but it can also be an extremely thin distillate by itself. Mm. But if you put it at a lower entry proof and allow the water to undergo the same chemical processes and same congener development that uh, the alcohol is getting, get a much better product at the end without sacrificing mouthfeel from the lower proof. So uh, I'm very much in alignment with you on that one. <laughs> and so I know we are running a little bit short on time. We've got another like 15 minutes or so. So I want to make sure to talk about, uh, of course, the Irish plus bourbon. Indeed. That's our next pour. So should we open in, those bottles up now? Yeah, let's crack it. I'm running low on mine here. I have to. I have, so to, gotta get I have to do something about that. Yeah. Good solid cork pops. I like that. All right. So with this product, same idea as the Irish plus American, but instead of the uh, rye whiskey being blended, you're blending in a uh, bourbon. And was a, a straight bourbon? It's a straight bourbon. Straight bourbon. I mean, I, I think they're all straights, to be honest with you. I think I so too. I just, yeah. We'll double check. We'll double What's check. That? That's fine. We'll double check. It's all, all good. Well, this is a straight This is an MGP bourbon, but I think right. you, the, like the baby bourbon is not a straight because it's not two years old, the Hudson baby bourbon. But I, I right. think all bourbons are straight, but I could be wrong. Anyway. Yes. As, as long as two years. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, the idea was, um, I mean, we loved the rye. We did some bourbon blends early on. We didn't have uh, the MGP bourbon, and it was another bourbon, and I didn't like them as much. And so the Irish rye was the first product launch because you know, we thought it was delicious. We took us a little while to find the right bourbon for this. And, uh, I mean, one was it's a very different product. Uh, much more bourbon forward. So it's a higher degree of bourbon in the blend, as you might guess. Um, and, you know, quite lovely in and of itself. So very different product. Yeah, the difference is noticeable immediately. I mean, it's noticeable on the nose, but especially on the palate. Yeah, that, that just that bourbon sweetness and caramel nougat kind of uh, flavor that bourbon, we all love in our bourbons. So, yeah. Yeah, for me, it, it characterized as instead of being the orchard fruit, so more Irish forward where the first one was, um, it, this one meant more into stone fruits, especially kind of, <laughs> I joke, the outside and the inside, the the skin of a stone fruit, like a plum or a nectarine, where it's just that little bit of tension on the outside that somehow translates into flavor, as well as the really dark acidity that you get right around the pit of a stone fruit mm. um, where it does taste a little different in those few millimeters rather than the rest of the flesh of the, of the fruit. And uh, that all came out to me a little more in, in the Irish plus bourbon than it did in the Irish plus American. And this, the, the latter really turned into a, a fruit bomb in the best way. It was just, so much fruit, as you were mentioning, of course, the the classic bourbon notes of of baking spices and and butteriness and vanillas and and caramels. Uh, but for me, it almost stayed more on the fruity side of the bourbon than on those cask influenced 
uh, levels, let's say. Or the well, that's, I'm going to have to pour myself a thicker pour here, David. And because uh, I'm going to throw a couple of the notes at you yep. along with those fruit notes. What dominated for me, uh, to be honest, was I'm going to call it cocoa and Tootsie Roll. That's what I'm getting in the thing. And Tootsie Roll has a fruitiness to it. If, if you think of, I don't know when you it last does. had a Tootsie Roll, but there's the, that cocoa with the fruit equals Tootsie Roll. So just a weird note out at you. You know, it's an, that's a note I hadn't thought of before. And it's been a while since I've had kind one. of a, <laughs> a weird cocoa flavor because it's like sweeter than it should be, you know. Yeah, anyway. yeah. it's one of my dad's favorite um, candies. So I'll just make the excuse that I'm buying some for him and I'll steal a few. Um, but you're right. That's a great way so, to describe it. Really? That's, I mean, it's weird. That's what I get. But I, And I, I get like a vanilla malt shake, too. Um and malt for sure. Vanilla malt shake with Tootsie Roll uh, pieces mixed, like a, a McFlurry, whatever. Mm-hmm. Vanilla malt shake, Tootsie Roll McFlurry. I know you were creative right with the flavor notes, so I had to like push on you there. Hey, why not? I think you've got a product um, partnership right there. If McDonald's is listening, <laughs> although you may you may want to go with a different one since the McFlurry machines are usually broken. <laughs> Um, a Tootsie Roll is going to mess that McFlurry up. That's a, for sure. Oh God, for sure. Um, so with the, so it, it was the, the, the inclusion of the MGP bourbon for you that really said, okay, this is a product that, that works now with the Irish and bourbon. Yeah. It, well, and then uh, um, we were kind of stuck around the Irish plus rye proportions and they were completely wrong for the bourbon. And so the bourbon had to go much more bourbon forward. Uh, All right. So, yeah. Without disclosing the the uh, proportions, of course. So we'll safely say that the proportion of bourbon is higher in that than the than the rye is in its respective products. That's right. That's right. All right. Fair enough. And if I keep looking to the side, it's because I'm taking copious notes that. Um, just ideas that come to mind and new questions and which again part of the fun of this so indeed going back to um what you have set up at the distillery um or i guess what brian has depending on who's whose shoulders you want to put it on uh you got it's the all triple brian's fault, so that's right okay all brian's fault all right so <laughs> you've got the triple pot distillation system uh you've got you know onion bulb pot stills uh, all copper as well. Yeah, this is a classic Forsyth's pot, you know, something you'd see in Ireland. I mean, you know, same pots you'd see in Scotland. In fact, High West has the, the same pots, a little different bulb on the on the, the system. But uh, uh, O'Shaughnessy also has a column still set up, a continuous column. And we're running bourbon mash bills through that. So, uh, you know, it's we'll, we'll be experimenting with a column as well as the triple pot. And, you know, we don't have all of our final product formulas down yet, but uh, we got them all. We, we've got everything to, in the toolkit to make whatever we want. It's awesome. It's awesome. So, yeah. So, I know we've only got time for maybe one or two more. Uh, questions here. So I want to pick the right ones I want to go with. Um, so this one, 
you touched on a bit uh, just before, which is the proofing down process. So of course, these are uh, the Irish plus American is at 50, uh, sorry, 43% ABV, 86 proof. The Irish plus bourbon is at 46% ABV and 92 proof. Um, so when and how do you go about the proofing down process? Um, well, you said I touched upon that. I, I don't think I did, but anyway, just, just, oh, just the, just the idea of proofing that, that things get proofed down and proofing down versus. Well, okay. Fine. You're right. I, I said, if you put it in a barrel at 110, you're adding less water when you're drinking it. So you end right, up right. with a richer product. So you're right. You're right. I'm wrong. Um, to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about their process for proofing down. So um, I know Brian and I talked about the French method because he did work for a French company and the French are very particular about how they proof down spirit. And they, they'll take a week to proof down Brian. And I think that's utter bullshit, but um, that has, that answer has nothing to do with how we proof down these. So I don't really know, but I, I think it's as simple as they add the water and, we just go with it. We at, at High West, we did the experiments of the slow and fast. And honestly, we couldn't taste a difference. So, you know, there, um, when you add water to uh, ethanol, there's an exothermic reaction creates heat. And so the theory is that um, you're baking off some of the, the flavors. And um, yeah, I, I think the only the most subtlest of palates can pick that up. But Brian and I, we, we weren't convinced it made sense to take the time and because you got all these tanks sitting around and to take a week to proof stuff down that really messes up your operation so there you go true i had to ask because I've, I've heard very strong arguments on both sides of this you know absolutely and the, the on the french side i mean oh they'll argue till they're blue in the face and i haven't mm -hmm. tasted the two but you know maybe we didn't run the experiment tight enough where we varied one variable so i don't even think it's I mean, maybe, and I'm always up for a new experiment. Like I said, that biochem is still in the back of my mind somewhere. So experiments are fun. You know, yeah. if, if you got the time, the problem is there's, there's more experiments on the list than you have time. Yeah. And I know just from being on a, uh, a chat with Ian Sturzman over at, at, should I say MGP or Ross and Squibb? I'll say both just to cover my bases. Um, but he was talking about the new Remus repeal reserve series. And I specifically asked him about his proofing down process at MGP. And he said, no, we don't do slow proofing. The, water just goes in and that was a damn good product that was a really good product and of course they're putting out all that rye and, and the bourbons that you guys are using as well and that's all slow uh not slow proofed rather so um, practical it comes down to the product yeah practical proofing it's a good way to put it it's a good way to put it maybe it just comes down to the product who knows well i mean could you make it better maybe but nobody's complaining about the practical proofing so you know um, yeah, I haven't tasted a slow proof product, you know, a B test where I said, wow, that's just amazing. But, you know, I'm sure it's out there. And, you know, if someone's done it, the French have done it or the French uh, devotees and uh, but hasn't happened to me. So. All right. So anyone in France, if you're listening to this episode and you happen to be in the industry, uh, you have my email. Let me know because I am curious and I'm always <laughs> down for tasting new things. Uh, so, you know, the last question I'll ask you then is about. Um, about cask management. Mm. So uh, you guys are getting the casks of, are you getting the whiskey, of course, for these products right now? But as you're 
developing uh, both broader expressions and newer expressions, uh, what do you plan on doing for getting casks and um, how are you using casks right now? Well, you know, I, I've only talked about it with Brian and his team at a high level. And, you know, we're, we're at the first base of, of O'Shaughnessy distilling. Uh, so I don't have a, a direct sexy answer for you other than, you know, it's all on a spreadsheet. We think about it. You know, the main thing is get it on a spreadsheet, get it in a database and know what you got. That's the first step to cask management. Uh, the second step you know, the details are important. Smell them all. A nose has to go on every single cask you have. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if, if it doesn't, you'll miss things that are musty. And musty will ruin an entire tank full of whiskey. So right now, I think that's the extent of our cask management that I know about. Fair enough. I've heard that too, that mustiness is perhaps the only flavor or characteristic that cannot be blended out. It just is you there. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many big whiskey producers stuff. I, I'll get a musky, musty product. And, uh, yeah, it's so disappointing because it, for me, I'm very sensitive to it. And I get it uh, all the time. And it's very frustrating because it's horrible. I agree with you. It's a shame. And it is also notable, of course, no mustiness in these products. These are some really delicious ones so far. And uh, I think if there was one more thing that I want to try, uh, in the short term, it is finding some of that ten-year-old finished in Malaga casks that you guys have. Uh, well, I think I think they had two casks of it, or it wasn't very many. So if you didn't get any, I got a I got a fifty cc bottle of it, mm -hmm. and that's all I got, and it was very good. I'll start searching for it. Yeah. All right. So this has been a wonderful time, David. David or Dave? I should call you Dave. I guess that's what you usually go you know. By. I, it works either way. You Dave or Dave, you don't care, I bet. Anything but Davey. I just won't do Davey. I call me Scott for all I care, but not Davey. <laughs> I, I, no one's ever called me Davey. You know, Dave or, you know, most Daves really don't care. I don't think I've met a David that says, you only call me David. I don't think I've met that. So that's part of the personality. Fair, fair. So Dave, thanks so much for taking all this time to, to talk about, of course, Keeper's Heart, the Irish plus American, the Irish plus bourbon. Um, I have notes and and uh, links to the products that will come up when this episode goes live shortly. So this is going to be a bonus episode that's going to come out before the end of uh, Bourbon Heritage Month. So we're going to do a tight turnaround on this, but it's going to be a fun one. Well, so, I appreciate uh, your homework and thoughtfulness, and uh, it, it clearly shows. So I appreciate that. And it's fun to chat with somebody that's serious about his hobby. Thank you. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. So there will also be links to, of course, the social media show notes, all websites. And in the meantime, it's been a new, another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Make sure to follow on Instagram, all the social media platforms, um, support on Patreon if you can. And we'll see you either next week or in a couple of days, depending on what day this goes live. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>